Heavenly Father, as your word tells us today, we do give you all our lives. And we ask that as we open your word today that uh, your spirit would fall on us, that you would enliven us, and that you would um, make us more like you. Because we can see that's what we need, that's what the world needs. We've seen how your spirit has fallen on our kids this week, and we thank you for that. And now we're asking that, that for our whole church, for not just today, but through the rest of this summer and on into the future. We thank you for um, inviting us in to give ourselves to you because you want to do in us what only you can do. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And it's good to be seeing you again. Glad that you're here with us today. And what a great day to come back. Because during my Jimmy Buffett period, I really loved the tropical thing. And it uh, almost makes me want to do the Jack Sparrow thing, but uh, I'm no good at that. Um, but uh, it was a very exciting, exciting week. And what you just saw was, it is a great reason to start this new message series, which we're calling, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Because the person who coined that phrase was someone who was sort of the kid's guru during my generation, my kid's generation, and so forth, uh, all the way kind of through even to recent years. In fact, I think there's an offshoot of his television program. And what I'm talking about, of course, is Mr. Rogers, okay? You know, Fred Rogers, yeah, he's a great guy. Awesome documentary, I hear. I haven't seen it yet, but I hope to see it soon. I can tell you this. We'll, we'll reference Fred uh, from time to time, who was a Presbyterian minister also, by the way. Uh, but we'll reference him from time to time, uh, possibly in this series. But, you know, we won't sing the Won't You Be My Neighbors. I, I certainly won't sing Won't You Be My Neighbors because I want you to come back. But uh, we, we, the theme, the idea of being a neighbor to people and that the whole world, everybody in this world is, would love for somebody to be their neighbor. And that's kind of where we're going with this. Because as I've prayed about this, I realized that, you know, our church has always been about and is still about uh, doing whatever it takes you hear this all the time, whatever it takes short of sin to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus and see the life change and the wonder of the message of Jesus in their life. So, so we, that's what we're all about. And as I prayed about this and thought about it, and I thought, you know what, it's time for us to sort of do a refresher on how do you do uh, relationships, how do you do neighborliness, how do you just share your faith in a normal, you know, everyday kind of way without being obnoxious, how do you do that, and, and how do you just live the Jesus way in the world we live in now. Because as you may or may not have realized, well, I'm sure you realize it, things have changed. Even in the last five to 10 years, they've really changed. Most people uh, who think about these kind of things are calling what we have entered or beginning to enter into the third age. And what that means is there's like three ages of the Western world. Okay, back when Jesus was on the earth and then Christianity started, it took three or four hundred years before Christianity got real traction and sort of took over the culture of the West. That was the pre-Christian era. Then they entered what could be called the Middle Era or the, the um, uh, Middle Age or the um, uh, pre, I mean, uh, the Christian age, and that doesn't mean that everybody was a Christian, but it meant that everybody had this sense that there was a God, that the Christian moral ethics, like you should love people, you should be kind to people, that peace is a good thing, all of that began to get you know, stuck in the framework of people's minds in that time. And the reality is we think that's always been the case, and that was not the case. Loving one another was not the case uh, in the pre-Christian days. But then we've now moved into an era where we've taken, uh, through a process of secularization, we've sort of shoved off the stage the idea of God and Christianity and Jesus and, and the Bible. And we said, we, don't, we want to be set free from that. I'm not we, but culture-wide in the West. You know, we want to be set free from that. And, and it's a chaotic time. Because when you take the foundations of your life, of how you're going to love one another, how you're going to live morally and ethically, and you shove it off, what you have to do is you have to make up a new foundation. And that's why there's so much angstiness and stuff in the world and, and where it is. And, and, you know, during times like this where there's a lot of, um, you know, change and, and things are different and people are a little worried and so forth and so on, uh, oftentimes somebody will rise up and they'll either write a book or become a, a well-known person who's able to define the moment, okay? Define the moment that we're living in. It almost, it's almost like God chooses to, okay, you do it, you know? And sometimes these people aren't even people of deep faith. But there just so happens that there's someone who's written a book that you've probably never heard of, and I'm not suggesting you read it. I'll explain it in a minute. 
But his name's Charles Taylor. He's a philosopher in Toronto, Canada, and he wrote a book back in 2007 that people in the universities and the colleges and, uh, and pastors like me have been talking about for a number of years now. You know, my friends who we, when we talk about it, I just had a conversation with a pastor friend about this two weeks ago. When we talk about it, I mean, we got to be honest with each other. We haven't read this sucker because it's a thousand pages long, okay? I mean, listen to this. That's a big book. But I'll tell you this, I've listened to one quarter of it on Audible. <laughs> but, but, it, but every page is like, oh, that's why. And this, this Ch- Taylor is an, as a person of faith. He's a Catholic from Canada. And, and he, he, he just concisely, a uh, thousand pages, brings it down to, oh, this is, this is how we became secularized. This is how we've moved into this secular world where we've shoved God off of the of the. Uh, off of our lives, okay? And this is the result. This is why we're feeling this angstiness and so forth. Well, the, the great thing is, is oftentimes when people like that come along, there'll be somebody that comes along behind them and decipher what they're saying down to a more palatable and more uh, accessible book or conversation. And the reality is that that's true. There's a guy by the name of Jamie K.A. Smith who uh, is a professor at Calvin College, and he's summarized it in about 180 pages, what Charles Taylor is saying. And here's how he summarizes what people are feeling uh, and what we're experiencing, and it explains a lot to me. So let me just show you what he says. In Taylor's prosaic account, that's Charles Taylor, of our secular age, this pluralized, pressured moment, you know, don't you feel like there's sort of a pressure in the moment? in which we find ourselves where believers are beset by doubt, and doubters, you know, people that don't even believe in God, agnostic type people, even every once in a while, find themselves tempted to believe. (laughs) Why believe? Even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. The wager of this book, like the gambit or the wager of Taylor's secular age, is that most of us live in a cross-pressured space. I think that, for me, defines what we're feeling. We're living in a cross-pressured space. There's pressures going back and forth where both the agnosticism, people are agnostic, and our devotion, people who are devoted to faith, are mutually haunted. People that are agnostic are like, yeah, but there's got to be some foundation of ethics and morality out there somewhere. Who, if it's not God, what is it? And people of, of faith think, well, why isn't the world better than it is? And so, forth. And so there's this kind of cross pressure going on. Doesn't that seem to be the way it feels sometimes in our culture today? Well, here's the news that this is saying. It's not just us. It's not just people of faith or Christians that are feeling this cross-pressure. It's your neighbors. They may not believe God. They may have kicked them out of their lives. They may think they have. Of course, their morals and the things they would long for sound a lot like Christian morals, like love, kindness, (laughs) But having said that, they're in the same boat, which gives us an open way to be a neighbor to somebody and be in the same boat at that level with them to say, hey, you know, this is a crazy world we're living in. There's a lot of anger and a lot of crazy stuff going on right now. And, you know, I think about that and I think, wouldn't it be great if in the Bible Jesus told us what a neighbor was and how to be neighborly to somebody? Wouldn't that be awesome? He does. I mean, it's the crazy thing. In fact, we're going to look at the story today. It's in Luke chapter 10. You can, you can open it up there if you've got your Bible. Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 25. And Jesus here articulates exactly what it means to be neighborly, that everybody in the planet, everybody in every life, every person you lay eyeballs on is created in the image of God, and every person is, has this sense of, I sure would like to be somebody's neighbor. And there's a lot of loneliness and a lot of people that aren't don't have neighbors today. So what I'm going to do is we're going to go through this event and the story Jesus tells in this event uh, verse by verse, okay? I'm going to sort of nerd out in the Bible for about 15 minutes. You, you know that I like to do that, okay? So we're going, to, we're going to go verse by verse, and then at the end I'm going to have some summary thoughts and some final thoughts about what does this mean practically for us and where do we go and sort of launch us into this, this series on once you be my neighbor. So let's start in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So this guy was an expert in the law. Some of your translations might say lawyer because he was an expert interpreting the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch, okay, the Ten Commandments. Because what had happened is, is, 
in the intertestamental period, between Malachi and Matthew, that white page, that 400 years of silence where God says, okay, I'm going silent, and then John the Baptist rises up uh, in, in the Gospels, okay? That 400 years, what had happened is the priesthood had changed a little bit. There had been a new group of religious leaders that had arisen called the Pharisees. And the, religious, the, the, the Pharisees were religious leaders, but they were more political than the priests had been. And so this guy was among the Pharisees. And among the Pharisees, they had these scribes or lawyers whose job it was to do the details and the interpretation of the text of what God had commanded in the, what for us is the Old Testament, but was their Bible, okay? And, and, and what this guy was doing is, is a little bit um, sneaky. He, he was t- coming to test Jesus. And the word test there means to test toward destruction. It's to test toward destruction. Uh, um, toward um, finding one little thing, and even if you have to take it out of context, one slight heresy or one thing that everybody will get ticked off about and blow Jesus' whole thing. You know, put it on Instagram, put it on Twitter, do whatever you got to do. It kind of sounds up to date, you know, to, to kind of destroy somebody. And he's, 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 he's trying to tear apart G- the Jesus movement before it even gets going. And here's what he says Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this guy is asking a question that everybody was debating at the time. Now, for the Pharisees and the, the Jewish leaders, the spiritual leaders, they believed, uh, the Pharisees did, in an afterlife, okay? They also had a group of people among them called the Sadducees, which did not believe in the afterlife, which is why they were Sadducee. <laughs> Are you tired of that joke yet? Anyway, um, so they the Pharisees believe in the afterlife, what they believed that there was eternal life, but they believed that if you're really, really good and you follow the law and you do what you're supposed to do, in the end, when God comes and, you know, sets up the the end of the world and and you're there in eternity, you get all these goodies. What this guy doesn't realize is Jesus has a completely different idea of what it means to have eternal life. Yes, you can get the goodies, but that's only a small part of it. The part of it for right now is that eternal power and the life of eternity can live in you and in your life right now. But this guy doesn't realize that. This guy doesn't. So he's asking, you know, how can I be sure I get the goodies in uh, the, the uh, afterlife? And Jesus responds to him gently. He doesn't say, oh, you dummy, you got your theology all backwards. No. He's, he asks him a question. So uh, what is written, uh, verse uh, 26, what is written in the law? You're an expert of law. You're supposed to know this. What, what do you, how, do you, how do you read it? And he, that is the lawyer, answered, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. First of all, this is a command of God from the Old Testament. It's when Moses came in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy 6 to say, let me summarize the whole law for you. The law is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So this is monotheistic. And that Lord you must give your entire life to. You know, some people, maybe you've heard sermons where it divides this up and say, you know, God wants your heart, and it talks about your heart. God wants your soul, talks about your soul. God wants your your strength. And and said, these are the four elements of a human being. That's not true. All of these are describing everything you and I are, okay, an entire complete human being. And so this guy says, he's, he's, he, he, these people would immediately recognize what he was talking about because everybody knew the Shema. That's what this verse is from Deuteronomy 6. The Shema is called the Shema because the word to hear for in the Hebrew is Shema. So when Moses says, hear, you know, listen up, that's what they want to listen up to because this is what God says. And it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, if you've ever seen, uh, con- uh, you know, conservative or Hasidic Jews with the hats, the black hats and the black coats, and, and uh, I rode an entire an airplane full of them uh, about two months ago, uh, and you, you, uh, you see those little boxes on the side of their head, those are called phylacteries. And in there they have the scroll, a little tiny scroll, which this verse written on it, this statement written on it. And maybe this guy, surely he had one, maybe he pointed at his phylactery, we don't know, but that's the kind of devotion this guy had to the Old Testament law. So that's the first command. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so that comes from Leviticus. That's not from Deuteronomy, which is interesting because Leviticus is taking a hit these days. I mean, it's even showing up in the cover of the New York Times in the last month uh, with regard to the sexual ethic and sexual morality 
in, in the book of Leviticus and people trying to tear it apart and saying it's, it's, not, uh, it, it's out of date and so forth and so on. But what I want to really focus on here at the moment is how uh, thankful I am to two weeks ago, I, I listened to the podcast, or I mean, I listened to the live stream of your services while I was gone. And uh, it's a great way to do it if you're not able to be here to, to kind of participate anyway. And I was so glad to hear Chris Green two weeks ago say, you know, the leadership and, and I, we had a leadership team meeting this week, and we just want to make sure we tell you that we love you and that, the, the, that uh, we have love for you. And, and that's true, you know, and it's true for me, and I want you to know that. I mean, it, the study leave I was on was, was great, and it was very helpful. Thank you very much. But it was everything I could do not to start, text, start texting people, hey, how's it going? You having a good day? You know, just want to interact a little bit. Uh, because this is just a great, loving church, and I, and I don't, I'm so, I'm so thankful for it. And I, I'm not trying to OD in my bliss or puff us all up or anything. I'm just saying I'm thankful for it. And I, I've realized that, and I'm so glad that he did that. But that's, that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. He's started, starting with those in the family of faith. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's going to make a real strong case that we need to go beyond that in our love. But love one another. And, and I understand more now what Jesus means, since I got into this job particularly, what Jesus means when he sees Jerusalem that time and he says, I wish I could do what a mother hen does for you and spreads her wings and protects her chicks from danger because there's bad stuff coming. He says this to Jerusalem, okay? I understand that feeling as I look at the culture today. That I wish I could do that, all right? Now, I know there's all kinds of weird images in your head right now. Dwayne is a chicken and so forth. And I'm not trying to say that I'm like Jesus because I am not, not even close. You know that. But that's the reality of how Jesus is asking us to do this, to express love first, to express grace first to people. Because you know what? The first expression in our culture, because everything's so discombobulated and everything's so individualistic, and it's all based on my feelings and my identity and my this and my that, that's the way the culture is pressing people. And when you don't have a God, and you're not believing in a God, who gives you, say, wait, this is the ethic, this is the way to live your life, and you're making it up, then you got to listen to somebody. And then the two greatest expressions in our culture are outrage, I think. Have you noticed that? People raging and anxiety. You know, I've got this angst, I've got this anxiety, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm, outraged. <clears throat> I'm outraged by this thing, I'm outraged by that thing. And that's, you know, when, you, when the foundations are crumbling, you got to come up with a new foundation. And that seems to be, it's not sustainable, but that's the new foundation, outrage and anxiety. I, I was struck by this when uh, I was talking to my uh, nephew-in-law when we were back in Minnesota a month or so ago. Uh, and he is a sociology professor at a local university there in Minneapolis. And just so you know, we have great conversations. I love the guy. He loves me. We, we talk and so forth. But we do not agree on just about anything, okay? We're, we're a thousand miles away politically, for one thing. I mean, he's a university professor, for crying out loud. So we're just miles and miles and miles apart. But, but we get along pretty well. And he was telling me a story, and we actually found something that we agree on. And it has to do with this business of does anxiety and, and, and outrage actually do anything? And uh, his church has been a church that's gone through some turmoil because um, they're part of our denominational family. And our denominational family has said our, our pastors will stand by the biblical uh, rendering of what marriage is between a man and a woman, that that's what it is, okay? And so their pastor prayed and participated in a same-sex marriage, and he was put on suspension. That caused all kinds of hollabaloo in the church. They sent denominational leaders there, you know, just to listen and try to work this out. They got really spewed at in many ways. And uh, my nephew <clears throat> said, uh, you know, I tell all my friends, people that are my age, because he's a, he's a millennial, he said, my age, I say, I, I've had to just tell him. I'm saying, you know what, all your rage and all your anxiety on this, and you popping off on, on YouTube or popping off on, on uh, Instagram, you think you've really done something by making a moral statement or something. You think you've done something, but you haven't. It didn't cost you anything. And now you're just an angry mess. He didn't win him too many friends, quite frankly. But, but yeah, I said, you know what? You're right, man. That's the direction the culture's headed. And in, in some cases, it's even crept into Christian circles. Thank God, not here, but, but you know, that, that, that's uh, the, the mark of the day. 
And yet the Jesus ethic, the Jesus way is, you know what? It's possible to be a different kind of person. And the reason it's possible is because Jesus will and is desirous and promises to anoint us with his Holy Spirit so that we can be transformed into a different kind of people. You know, one of the things, and and that we can get it, because we can't get it without him. We can't even get his ethic. We can't even understand what it means to be a neighbor without him, really. One of the ways to understand a text that you're asking questions about and answer your questions is to look at the context around it. Look at what's being said around it. Look at the, the, uh, the, the story around it. And this is true in this, this uh, uh, chapter. If you look at the early part of chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples, two by two, to different towns to do ministry. And he doesn't go with him. But he sends his spirit with them, and they come back and say, oh, Jesus, you can't believe it. I mean, demons were coming out, and, you know, people were, were change, having their lives changed and made new and loving each other. It's just crazy and great. And so when, when Jesus hears all the good news that has happened in verse 21 of Luke chapter 10, here's Jesus' response. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things, these wondrous spiritual things, from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Why would that be a big deal? Because these are the grassroots people. These aren't people that are supposed to know all this stuff, and you revealed it to them. So it must be a God thing. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Skip down to verse 23. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, not to the crowd, to them so privately, hey, blessed are, your, uh, are the eyes of, that see what you see. So I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. In other words, you're getting it because the Holy Spirit has transformed your hearing and you're seeing to the point that you can see where he's headed with this thing. And maybe not the exact outcome, but you can see and you can relax a little bit that somebody's got this. You don't need to be outraged. You don't need to be in anxiety. And, and, and that's, I think, what Jesus is trying to do in this particular moment. Look what he says to this guy. He says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Verse, this is verse 28, by the way. Do this and you will live. He's talking about your lifestyle will be different. You'll be changed if you love God and love your neighbors yourself. Love God with your whole life. But he wanted to justify himself, that is the lawyer, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? (laughs) Now this was a hot question in the day. Because all kinds of people thought, well, who's my neighbor? And everybody, you know, the Jewish people, the Jewish teachers of the the law would say, well, it's got to be a Jewish person. It's not anybody that's not a Jewish person. And even among the Jews, there's some people you're not going to want to associate with, right? So they're kind of going that way. And this guy's just trying to mess up Jesus, the Jesus movement, before it even gets going. But having said that, it's interesting to me that he asked the very question that I would want to ask. Don't you want to know what Jesus thinks about a neighbor? I mean, I would want to know, okay, Jesus, who's my neighbor, and how, practically speaking, am I supposed to do this? What's the deal with this? And every once in a while, God will sort of answer and, and open your eyes to, hey, this is the person, and this, this, this is a person who's your neighbor, and that's a person who's your neighbor. And when I was away, I was reading a book by a guy named Joseph Bottom, who's a, a journalist. He's been on NPR, NBC, Washington, or the Wall Street Journal. He's been... Uh, He's the editor-in-chief of a magazine called First Things, which is sort of a public conversation magazine uh, uh, a journal from, um, from a Christian perspective. He's a Catholic fellow. And right in that book, I found out something, or I, I, I heard him give a description of a neighbor who is very close to home for, for us. Let me, let me read for you. It's a little long, but you just ask yourself if you've met this person. She lives in Oregon, a woman I know. Call her Bonnie Paisley. Married and divorced twice, she has two children. The younger one, the daughter, lives with her, while the older one, the son, stays with her first husband and his current wife. Although the couple too, that couple too is getting divorced. So we see a lot of that, don't we? Bonnie is a psychologist by profession with a master's degree from UC Davis, I think. She has a home office in one of those, get this, surprisingly sleepy, droopy pine Oregon towns outside of Portland. Is that us? Happy Valley, maybe. I don't know. A nice, 
big old wooden house, all dark brown, shingles, red trim. I've been driving around trying to find this place. <clears throat> and to visit even to hear her talk about it is to realize the extent of her home pride. She would mock, in conversation she does mock, the sterile flawlessness of the 1950s suburbia. In other words, you know, all the perfection of it, because nobody can be that perfect. Ozzie and Harriet houses, she calls them leave it to beaver homes. Of course, born in 1972, she has no memory of television's original presentation of those fantasy residences. In truth, Bonnie's careful house is a recreation of the old television homes she mocks. She's trying to recreate a life that she's, she's mocked and, and, and says no more. Only the styles have changed. Black slate kitchen counter and the sparkling in the afternoon sun through the west windows, the rainbow New Age crystals. Ah, yes, the New Age stuff. As far as religion goes, she doesn't have any, at least not any that she follows with commitment, although she insists she's a spiritual person, a la the New Age stuff. Bonnie is a poster child, a living image of the post-Protestant, what we would call post-Christian, Bottom's a Catholic, so he doesn't want to say post-Catholic. So. Post-Protestant moment in the history of American Protestant religion. Something was going to fill the foundational spaces left by the ascended post-Protestants. But the first thing to remember is that there's nothing alien about the post-Protestant phenomenon, nothing foreign about it. In other words, it's nothing that's out there, not like us, about these poster children. In origin, manner, and effect, they are all very American. And very Western. Does that kind of sound like? Kind of sounds like the people we live with. It sounds like some of us sometimes. You know, I mean, it's the you know, the stuff that gets into our minds and our hearts. He's describing here someone who would be our neighbor. And so Jesus is going to answer the question, "Who is my neighbor?" And he's going to answer it very clearly. But he doesn't do it ungraciously. What's interesting is this guy's trying to take him down, and yet Jesus is the same guy that not only said love one another, love, love others uh, um, as you would love yourself, you know, but he also said love somebody else. He said love your enemies, didn't you? Ooh, that's a tough one. That one like is a disconnect right there. And he's, this guy's his enemy. So he's going to love him by giving him a direct, clear answer that this guy finds himself in, and what he's up to without just shutting him down with outrage, without just, you know, shutting him down, getting all nervous. So, yeah, you can't ask me that question. Or not just saying, you know, it's people like you that are the problem with this country. And none of, he's not doing that, right? He's, he's going to tell a story that everybody can identify with and has for two millennia now and that we can identify with. Here's his answer to the question, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, that road was known as the Bloody Highway. That's what Jerome called it. Okay, in fact, the, the space between Jerusalem and Jericho is, is still a little rugged today. In fact, Israelis oftentimes will not go that way if they're going to Galilee, up the Jordan Valley. They'll go all the way out to the seacoast, to the Mediterranean, up the seacoast, and then cut over to Galilee to avoid going through Palestinian territory. It's still like it was 2,000 years ago. So he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Surely he's going to help him. When he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too the Levite, the religious class of the Israelites, of the Jewish people at the time, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. So Jesus is expanding the definition of neighbor. Neighbors aren't just people in the next driveway. They're not just people over the fence. They're people that the God, by God, by his Holy Spirit, brings into your life and my life as we're going somewhere. As we're going to work or going to school or as we're there or we're going to the store or he brings people into our life that if we're listening, we'll say, hey, that's someone I want you to be a neighbor to. Because this guy, these guys didn't plan on this, but here it was, but they made the decision not to do it, and the reason they made a the decision not to help was because of their fears. And what I want to be real careful here is to say they had religious reasons for doing this, but they were not religious truths from the Bible. They were religious opinions. 
And that's where our fears come from. Like these guys were saying, well, I'm not going to get my hands unclean, you know, because there's unclean laws in the Old Testament. I'm not going to uh, deal with somebody because this person might be of a different nationality than Jewishness, doesn't look like me, doesn't act like me, doesn't, you know, uh, you know, and, and it's, in this case, it's not just racism, it's a different kind of Jewish person, although racism is a reality and it's a big problem for us today. But but it's someone who doesn't look like him, and man, I'm just not going get, to get involved in that and so forth and so on and so on. All of due to fears because of opinions, because God made it clear in the Old Testament too that we ought to take care of the marginalized, we ought to take care of the hurting, even if they're people who aren't like us, even if they're people who are a diff- different ethnicity of that than us. He says that over and over and over again. And yet these guys didn't remember that part of the Bible. They just remember the part of the Bible they wanted. And then Jesus drops the shocker. This is the bomb. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. You know why this is a big deal? Because the Jewish people that were standing around listening to Jesus talk about this hated Samaritans. They viewed Samaritans as a mix between pagans and Jews that had left the faith. The Samaritans had their own temple up in Mount Gerizim. They had their own scriptures, their own version of the Pentateuch. Samaritan version. And, and these people, you know, if you want to see what it's sort of like, look at the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis today because it's not that different. The only people who are trying to love one another are the Christians over there right now, quite frankly. And it's, it, you'll learn that if you go on that trip with us next week, next year. But, but the, the reality is that's, that's, what, um, that's what, why these people would have reacted so strong, strongly. And, and Almost immediately at this point, this guy who's asked this question, this, this, this uh, lawyer, this scribe, he had to be going, oh no, I'm caught in the story. Let me out, let me out, you know, because Jesus has just gently said, you know what, you're so wrong. Here's, here's your neighbor. It might even be someone of the, among the, the hated Samaritans. But before we get too smug about this this lawyer, this guy who was, from his perspective, trying to follow a law, follow God, even though he was, he was sincere about it, but he was sincerely wrong about it. Think about how we deal with this today, who, who we consider to be our neighbors, and how we treat people that don't look like us. Now, again, not just ethnicity, although that's really important, but different socioeconomic class, or, or people that we, we see and we get the nudge from the Holy Spirit, hey, go up and, 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 and talk to that person, or say hello to that person, or just, you know, Give them a gracious greeting or something, and, and you're going, no, nah, not them. I mean, what if God's already working in their life for that? I mean, how, how do we respond? Because we live in a culture where everybody will say, well, no, it's my individual world. It's not about what you care about. It's what I care about, right? In fact, listen to these, this song. Um, it's, it's sort of darkly humorous. It's a song from a rock group. Listen to these lyrics. It's called The Merry Minuet. They're rioting in Africa, they're starving in Spain, there's hurricanes in Florida, and Texas needs rain. The whole world is festering with unhappy souls. The French hate the Germans, the Germans hate the Poles. The Italians hate the Yugoslavs, the South Africans hate the Dutch, and I don't like anybody very much. (laughs) It's okay to laugh at that, because we're we're not believing that, right? But we can be tranquil tranquil and thankful and proud that man is endowed with a mushroom-shaped cloud, and we know that for certain that some lovely day, someone will set off the spark and we will all be blown away. They're riding in Africa, they're strifing Iran. What nature doesn't do to us will be done by our fellow man. Now, <laughs> that's sort of done in a sort of humorous way. It's, it really is. It's a song. I, I kind of tricked you. It's not a modern rock group. It's 60 years old by a group I never really listened to. I think they're called the Kingston Trio or something like that. And, but the thing is, is, what that indicates is this is not a new thing. Ever since Cain and Abel, we've had this issue with people that aren't like us, right? And those may be the very people that Jesus is asking us to be the neighbor to. And that's what he's doing. He's expanding in a radical way, in a way we never would have expected, who the neighbor is. And everybody, regardless of who they are on the planet and what group they come from and all that kind of stuff, everybody longs to be somebody's neighbor. Won't you be my neighbor? And the first thing that Jesus teaches his disciples back at the beginning of chapter before he sends them out, 
is to exa- do exactly what this, this uh, Samaritan does. He doesn't get anxious. He doesn't get rageous. This is a Jewish guy. He takes pity in the guy. In other words, he, he treats the guy with peace and graciousness. And that's exactly what Jesus tells his disciples to do when they go to these towns in, in chapter 10, verse 5. He says, the first thing you do is when you come into a house, say, peace be on this house. Assume that God's already at work in here. Assume that God's already at work here and say, I'm going to assume the best because of that, so peace be on this house. Now, right thereafter, he says, if, you do, if the peace comes back to you and you don't, it's not peaceful, then we got some other remedies for that. But right now, just peace be on this house. So here's what this Samaritan does. Uh, verse uh, 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, which was expensive, but that was their medicines in those days. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So uh, the, the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. So the, the innkeeper was given these two denarii. One denarii was like a, a one day's wage. These two denarii would keep him there for 14 days. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And now, the moment of truth. Jesus turns to him, and in many ways to us, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? I mean, these guys are still in shell shock that he would use a Samaritan as an example. So here's what the expert says. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. What was that? The one who had mercy on him. You know, he can't bring himself to say the Samaritan because it's just too foreign to him. And so Jesus just lets it go. He said, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Just like that. Watch for those divine appointments. Listen for them and just be that Samaritan to them in the beginning. You know, I'm going to get on to these implications real quick in, in just a second, but I just got to give you a summary that I thought was the best summary I've read in a long time of this particular parable. It's by N.T. Wright. It says this, <clears throat> What is at stake then and now is the question of whether we will use God-given, uh, the God-given revelation of love and grace, because God reveals that to us, as a way of boosting our own sense of isolated security and, or impurity, you know, keeping ourselves in a, in a safe little bubble or whether we will see it as a call and a challenge to extend that love and grace to the whole world, no church, no Christian can remain content with with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. And that's the situation we're in. And I I don't say that to be depressing because it's not depressing. God's done this a million times before. We have evidence right in from our face every time we crack our Bible that God can take a, a, a society and a world and, and use his people in it to make all the difference in the world. I mean, even in, in difficult circumstances that aren't anything close to what we have, when people are losing their freedoms. Like, look at the Old Testament. Look at the book of Jeremiah, for example. When people are sucked away, at, hundreds of miles away, into exile, into other countries... And as, as, they're, as they're taken there, they're told that God's not going to bring them back to their country for 70 years. And so what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? What's God expect of us? Well, here, here's what God says. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat their, what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace. We already heard about that. And the prosperity of the city. So see, even though it's not your, you don't feel identified with the city, seek, be a neighbor to the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will prosper too. That's a good, good rendition of being a neighbor. How, how about this one? In the New Testament, Paul, you know, went around the Mediterranean, planted churches, and some of them really took off in certain towns. And there's a, a place called Thessalonica up in northern Greece. It's actually Thessaloniki. Uh, Sharon was there a couple years ago helping with the refugee crisis because that's where they're keeping all the refugees in Greece anyway right now. And um, Thessalonica, though, the church there... Uh, took off. They started loving one another, very much like here, loving one another, and it really was just a powerful, powerful thing. It was a movement in the, in the city, and then all of a sudden, uh, things began to kind of 
Peter out a little bit because somebody had gotten the idea and gotten the, the wind of the fact that, that Paul had taught them that Jesus was coming back. And they thought he meant next week. So instead of sharing the love with people out there, they huddled around and shared love with each other. And they quit their jobs, and some of them had businesses. They sold their businesses, and they just hunkered down because Jesus is coming back. Why waste my time? Right? Well, Paul writes them and said, no, 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 you misunderstood me. And here's what he says. He says, now about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, which you're doing great at that. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more and make it your ambition to do what? To lead a quiet life and you should mind your own business and work with your hands. Go back to work just as we told you so that, you, that your daily life may, be, uh, may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That you'll win the respect. You'll win the respect of outsiders. Live among them as non-anxious presences. And I think that's where God wants us to go with this. And, and here's, the, here's let's make this super practical. I think God's stirring in our church. I can see it. I mean, I, you know, just even in the last month, what, what we've seen. And, you know, I was watching you on live stream, as I said. And uh, I, I'm, the, the first week, I think, or the second week, you prayed for Austin, who was supposed to go to Chick, and in a family car accident. He's still up uh, in, I think, a coma up in um, OHSU praying for his family. He's a foreign exchange student. They came over here from Taiwan, I believe it is. But you all prayed for him. I watched that moment. I thought, oh, man, God's doing something these years. And then you had a prayer vigil for him, and over 20 of you showed up. That's big. And you prayed for the family. And here's the thing I believe. Regardless of how that all turns out, I hope and pray that it turns out that he's, you know, he wakes up and things are, 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 are uh, you know, God does an amazing thing and a miracle there. It, it, but whether or not that's true, he's already, he does not waste a prayer ever. He's already worked among us. He's worked in the family. He's working in Austin. And, you know, I, I, I hope and pray that this is not the case. But even if it's the God calls him home, I mean, God's got that too. I mean, he's working it, and we're, we're praying and, and going along with him on the journey in that sense. And regardless of how the journey goes. So, it, I, you know, that is, I think, what it means to be a neighbor. We saw our kids this week in VBS be a neighbor. You know, I had this vision as these kids. I had preschoolers working outside my yard or outside my window all, all, all week. It was great to watch them, and they weren't fighting. I mean, you have some amazing children, okay? You, you people and your children. I mean, you must be doing something right because there was just this, 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 this enthusiasm for the Lord from the get-go. I mean, here's what, here's what they learned. I mean, here, here's what they're taking with them. Jesus rescues from when you're lonely, when you, you worry, when you struggle, when you do wrong, and down here, when you're powerless. That's all I need, right? And I had, I had this vision, this idea that these kids now, as they fan out into the community, they're, being, they're leading the way for us to be neighborly out there. Isn't that true? I mean, they're being neighbors. They were neighbors to each other. They loved one another. Now they're being neighbors out there. And what sort of sealed the deal for me is, is a picture that I took on Thursday, okay? You already saw that they raised $709 for the, um, you know, kitchen utensils and stuff for this house that our mission team that left yesterday morning at 6 o'clock, and we prayed for them. As they went, they're driving down now. Keep praying. But they're building a house, but this family's got nothing to put in a house. So these kids raised 700 bucks. Which, which will get a lot of stuff down there. And, and, and so they've, they've, they've got this. And, but here's how they raised it. Look at all those quarters. Isn't that cool? I mean, somebody was robbing their piggy bank. Somebody hasn't gotten to these kids yet to tell them that their money is for them to keep and spend on themselves. Somebody better get to them quick. You know? I mean, look at that. I mean, that, that, that's just an expression of, you know what? I want to help my neighbors to the south of the border. Let me give you another way that could possibly work, and you'll hear about this in a second too, but, but uh, you know, we, we we're always trying to think of ways to help you have conversations and get out there and be neighborly with people. And, and uh, one of them is the, the Outer East Art House that does the plays and so forth. You always heard, already heard that that's why we do it, and you'll hear it again even this morning. But I had this idea, you know, and please understand, I'm not trying to get more rear ends in the grass out there. That doesn't sound very good. I, I'm, I'm not trying to get you to show up, Okay. But imagine this. Okay, imagine you invite some friends. Maybe they got kids. They watched the first one, Princess and the Goblin, which, by the way, was written by a pastor in the 1800s, a guy named George MacDonald. 
and then you, or, or if they don't have kids or whether you stay for Macbeth at 9 o'clock. And it's a, it's a one-hour rendition of Shakespeare's Macbeth. It's been kind of pared down and updated in that way. And um, you watch that, and you go out to coffee or food or something afterwards, or maybe you just talk to him over the fence, or another day you're there. He said, hey, what'd you think of Macbeth? Well, I'm not really into Shakespeare, but that was pretty good, right? And then what if you ask him a question? What'd you think about that Macbeth guy? Do you think that's real, that people can be that evil? That, that stuff can get into us? What, what do you think? And just let it drop. Let it, you've opened the door to a spiritual conversation because you've been a part of that, right? And that's, that's the style that Jesus has. That's the way of Jesus. That's Jesus' way. It, and it, and it, it all boils down in terms of being neighborly. I think it boils down and it starts with having a non-anxious presence. It's, that's not a phrase that's in the Scripture. It was coined by a guy named Edwin Friedman, uh, Friedman a psychiatrist back in the 90s. But a, a Jesus-centered, non-anxious presence. Because there is so much anxiety and kerfuffle in the world today. You will be a very different person if you have a non-anxious presence. If we just prayed for that, God, do that in our lives, we would shine like lights in a dark universe. Okay? But how do you do that? How do you get started with that? Well, let me just give you five quick things. One is, I heard two pastors talk about this in the last three weeks, because I was visiting around too. And I was looking for some of you, but I'm glad you weren't there. But anyway, they, first they said this, doubt your doubt. When you start to doubt whether or not God is really in a situation, doubt your doubt. Rely on the scriptures that God has promised to be in this culture, in your world, in your situation. Secondly, and this is what we're going to do for this entire series of Won't You Be My Neighbor?, Live the historic, biblical, or spiritual practices. You know, things like prayer. Uh, we're going to do this series that comes from our denominational family. Uh, it's a movement that started called BLESS. And each of the letters of BLESS, the five, stand for one of these spiritual practices. Like next week we'll ta- start with begin with prayer. L is listen uh, intently. You know, that's, listening is a spiritual practice. It's hard for some of us like me. Eating together. Did you know you can eat together in a spiritual practice? It's a, that's a good one. You're going to like that one. But we're going to talk about, you know, how do we do this kind of living non-anxiously but being in a neighborly way? And thirdly, pray like you want it. Pray like you want God to revive your church and revive your society and revive this city and, and turn it around. Not just, you know, okay, I got my five minutes in. Okay, I got, thank you, God. Do it. Fourthly, be in fellowship. And the reason this is so important that we be together is because none of us are grade A neighbors all the time. Sometimes we hit tough sledding. I need you to pick me up. Sometimes you need me to pick you up. That's why we need each other together. And because of that, we ought to define our success in terms of trust or faith, not in perfection. I wasn't a perfect neighbor, but I trusted God. I took the leap, you know. I I took the leap to invite my friend to this thing, and they didn't come. I took the leap to say something to somebody and say hello, and it looked like I, you know, just scared the daylights out of them, you know. They thought, oh, no, you're one of those evil Christian people. You know, whatever. But that's not the point. The point is you trusted God, right? And you see, if we do this and we pray this way and we ask, I believe that what we'll see is a promise that Paul talks about in, in uh, Philippians come true. That as we pray about this and we do this, that we'll see this, this renewal and the work of the Spirit in Happy Valley. And then as we work together with people uh, of, um, you know, sisters and brothers around our city, metro, throughout the city, I believe this can happen. Here's what Paul says. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. That would be a non-anxious presence right there. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. That's a pretty good description of the third age. When you will shine, like them, shine among them like stars in the sky, and you'll be so different just because of your kindness and your your non-anxious presence, as you hold firmly to the word of life, you'll shine like stars in the sky. What if that's not just a Coldplay song? <laughs> what if that is really real and that God wants to do among us? Let me pray for us that he would do that. And as, as we do, you can keep your eyes open just long enough to take out this green card in your program. Because okay? what I'd like to ask you to do, I don't know if you knew this, but you can pray with your eyes open. But I'm thinking of the letters A, B, C right here. And I want to be able to pray with you as we start this journey and won't you be my neighbor, all right? 
And A would be, I agree. I want to learn to be a neighbor to my neighbors, whoever God brings in my life to be a neighbor. I want to learn how to check out those divine appointments that God brings people to my life. And you just write the letter A, and I'll know that that's how I can pray for you. Of course, you've got to be helpful to put your name and any information on the front that you can give us. Or maybe you're a person, we have this every single week, no matter how many people are here, what time of year, but people who aren't believing yet. You, you, you say, well, I'm not a Christian even. I don't even know if you... You know what? You can. And you say, you know, today I'd like to. And all you need to do is say, Lord Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sin, and be, uh, be in my life and make my life new. And that, he promises to do it. You'll see amazing things. Find it your own. But if, if you're believing for the first time, you write B. So you got A, you B. And C are those of you who are already Samaritans to somebody. You're already caring for somebody. And you would just like some prayer that it would, that God would give you the opportunity to be neighborly to these people and be a true neighbor the way God means for it to happen, to love your neighbor as yourself. I want to pray for you too because I know there's a lot of you here. So just those three things and then turn them in in the boxes or the, the, the bin bags out back and, and I'll make sure to be praying over those, okay, as we go forward. Let me now pray for us. And I'm going to close my eyes. You don't have to. But. Heavenly Father, I thank you. And I praise you that you let us in on what you're doing and that you want, us, you want to be a part of this with us. We love you for that. And Lord Jesus, would you please um, show us the way in that? Would you send your spirit upon us that you'd continue to do what you did through our kids this week and that you're doing in the lives of people here already and that, that as Paul says and to the Thessalonians, that things are going great, but we would like to have more of your spirit and your presence and see more lives transformed and that we would have those lives of peace and non-anxiety in midst of the world that's so full of anxiety and even rage at times. I thank you and praise you that that's exactly what you can do. You've done it a million times before. And I know you want to do it in us and I can see it that you're doing it. And we're asking you to keep going and help us to keep going in it. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And thank you for being here this morning. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.